Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 346. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com. Please buy their records. While you're online, follow twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Dave's the guy who made the logo. All About Jazz carries this show on their website at allaboutjazz.com, and there's a widget you can use on your website to show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. To get it, just go to allaboutjazz.com, and in the search box, type in Jazz Session Widget. Put that code on your website, and let me know you did it, okay? Because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. To get the newsletter, go to thejazzsession.com, and at the top of the page, you'll see Mailing List. Just type in your email address, and I think your name, and click Done, and that's it. You'll get an email from me each week telling you who's on the show that week, and also giving you some other jazz and usually poetry links of note. This show is member-supported. That means... People like you, people who listen and decide to become members, are the ones who keep this show on the air because it does literally, I, I kid you not, it does literally keep me alive. So if your membership is something you can afford, then your membership is something I highly value, and I would appreciate it if you could join at any level, starting at 10 bucks a month or a yearly sum of $110, and it goes up from there, and there is a special membership promotion running right now for the next two people who join at the middle or upper level either monthly or yearly, there's a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set Seasons on its way to you. My guest today is the saxophonist Ben Wendell. He's part of the band Kneebody, and he's also got a great new solo record out on Sunnyside that is called Frame. Let's hear the title track. My guest is saxophonist and composer Ben Wendell. His new album on Sunnyside is called Frame, and it is a pleasure to have you on the show finally. Thanks for being here. Thanks. This record feels to me like a very intentional record, not just like I had these guys together and let's go in the studio and see what happens. It, it, has, a f- it has a feeling of having some driving kind of motivating force or idea behind it. I wonder if you could, if maybe that's wrong, if it is, correct me, but if it's not, I'd love to hear what that what that was i'm glad that it sounds that way to you (laughs) um, because um 
Well, okay. the I, the fo- The focus is is always about the the players that I use, and I always try and have really strong compositional ideas. So that's definitely there. But in terms of the overall arc of the album, I actually have to give a lot of credit to a friend of mine. That's um, I can't actually can't mention his name, but he's he's a he's a very good friend of mine that that has produced many albums and has done track order for a lot of albums and and really still puts a lot of importance on that and he was the one that really helped me um pick and choose the tracks that would make sense and really create um an arc um so in that sense the 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 original album had there were 13 songs that we tracked and nine of them made it and just through his help i think he he was able to help me create a frame if you will and and sort of a of a, a, a general consistent feeling from the beginning to end. Can you say more about what you mean by arc, especially when there's not at least not an apparent uh, narrative, for example, to the record? Well, I mean, um, um, for so far in my life, I have not been um, a much of a like a thematic composer. Mm. So I don't. I I have never done like concept albums. I've never written to text or, you know, like I've always heard Wayne Shorter loves to write to movies or to ideas of images. And that just hasn't been the case for me. And I don't know if it'll ever change in that way. So um, I think in terms of arc, I think, yeah, just the the feeling that um, I love the idea of listening to an album and feeling as though you started in one place and ended in another. And that also that it has a feeling of, um, uh, completion, if if that makes any sense, and so I'm always kind of looking for that. That by the end of an album, it feels like yeah, it's done. Like that's that's where it should have been done. Do you do you arrive at that through, for example, the use of of motifs or something that recur so that the album holds together? Or ha- in this particular case, how did how did you arrive at what you felt like was a sense of both completion and kind of continuity this one had more to do with um orchestration of tracks and and just uh track order and then you know um a lot of this music actually a lot of this music there there are quite a few tracks that do have thematic threads that that relate to each other uh because um a few of these tracks came from a from a um a suite that i wrote for a chamber of music of america grant and that was the first time that I actually attempted to write a large uh, piece where the different movements would actually relate to each other, whether it be rhythmically or thematically or whatever. So that is kind of uh, littered throughout the album, that idea. Um, but mostly, I think, I don't know. I, I, gosh, I wish I knew. I, I think I think if, if you're, I think for, for myself, like I, I tend to just write in a way where, it has a certain feeling uh, to me, um, whatever that feeling is, and it, and it tends to be, whatever that aesthetic is, just so far it tends to be consistent from track to track, even if the tracks are energetically very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, um, I don't know, the way that this album starts and ends, it just felt appropriate.
you mentioned uh, your albums tending to be about the players. Mm. Does that mean that you know who the players are and then write the music? Well, obviously, you said you'd already written some of the music. Are you writing some of the music or arranging it to their strengths, or are you finding people who fit the music you've already got, or some combination? A little, little of both. Yeah, I mean, my um, uh, my music tends to be has it tends to have a strong, uh, almost like classical aesthetic to it. Not just because I play bassoon, but just that's kind of how I was raised. Uh, my mom was an opera singer, and and I've always just been way into classical music and. And so I'm so far I'm always for for these type of albums I'm always looking for musicians that naturally have this ability to really just like play the parts beautifully and 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 feel like that's enough and not get all jazzy on them if that makes any <laughs> sense but still have the intelligence and almost like the producer kind of mind to know when it's okay to move away from the parts and so the musicians that were selected for this album, to me, really have that balance where they they play the song, you know? It's like, this is the material and I'm going to play it. But then they know when to kind of move away from that so that it doesn't feel like they're just locked in. And do the in the improvised sections, do you give instructions about using the composed material to fuel the improvisation? Uh, do you write, you know, open sections with just chords, or how does it how does it tend to work for you? Uh, it depends on the piece, like the track one called Corral. Um, I really wanted that melody to just continue through the whole piece. So while one, and it's kind of a round a roundabout kind of song where each person gets one full form to play over, and then everybody behind them is just playing the the parts really deliberately mm-hmm. and specifically it just depends um i again i, I tend to um hopefully the idea is I, I i really like the idea of 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 um using musicians where you have you can you have to give as little instruction as possible like that, that just how they would naturally play is how you they would you'd want them to play anyways and so far it's that's been the case like i've had to say very little and they just kind of play the parts the way they would want, and it actually just works out. Will you talk about who's on this record? Uh, so we've got a lot of different keyboardists. We've got Gerald Clayton on a few tracks. We've got Tigran Hamasian. We've got Adam Benjamin playing Fender Rhodes and piano from, from Kneebody. Um, we've got Nir Felder on guitar and uh, Ben Street on bass, and then Nate Wood, who's also from Kneebody, on drums. Was the multiple... Pianists, uh, just a logistical thing, or was it a, a intentional? You know, I want this person's sound on this and this. On Definitely this. a sound thing. Yeah, I mean, like Gerald and Tigran, I think that's a pretty good contrast right there in terms mm-hmm. of very different kinds of piano players. And um, and again, yeah, like if you if you listen to the tracks that they're on, those those. When I was writing them, it's, I, I think you can hear that they were. I was thinking about those musicians specifically, like Tigran. He plays on that song "Frame," which is like this uh, rhythmically pretty complex piece, and he just is able to navigate it in such an easy way. And then, like that song "Clayland," uh, which Daryl plays on, which is like literally my little nod to, to what how how I hear his songs. Um, you know. It was just a great fit for him, and he sounds great on it. 
Um, so, so it's that kind of idea. And then Adam, you know, Adam and Nate, I've worked with them for so long in Kneebody and I, and they, I love, I just love their aesthetic. And, and so there's already like a rapport there. Um, and then same idea again, like the way that Adam would play over certain tunes. I was really thinking about him. The other day I was uh, listening to music with my friend uh, Josh Rutner, who's also an Eastman alum, uh, as you are, and he was, I mentioned to him that I was interviewing you soon, and uh, he said, oh, man, the thing I like most about his writing are these incredible solely parts that he writes, and he played me three or four tracks that have these just, you know, it seems like they just go on, you just can't even imagine, because I know you guys are <laughs> looking at music in anybody, and you just can't even imagine how they're, how they're possibly being pulled off, and I wondered where that idea of just long lines, I mean, it's almost like some sort of mental challenge to be able to figure out, like, how do I stay with this incredibly complex, gorgeous line? I wonder where that kind of started coming into your... your God, I have no idea. I, I just love that sound. I love that sound of, like, um, of just... Um, of, like, some type of, like, static harmonic bed and then some type of narrative happening over it that's not just 10 seconds long but that just really really goes and tells you this long story it kind of reminds me of like I got to see for example Garrison Keillor live and um, I didn't know it at the time but so he, he did like a two hour thing where he just was telling stories and I found out later that he was improvising a lot of it and it's it just incredible to hear him do it, you know, and it kind of, it's like, somehow that's like the same aesthetic that I'm thinking of, where someone's just kind of speaking and one thing leads to another. And, and the way the way that I've written a lot of those solely sections, I, it's really funny. He, that's, I know, I love Josh. That's funny to know that, to, to discover that I'm known in certain ways. Cause I did that the, right now as you're saying it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess I've done that enough times that that's a thing, you know, but, um, just how those are written, how those are developed has been different each time. You know, sometimes I've been playing with a band and I'll throw a recorder on and, 
and just literally take a solo and and then transcribe that solo or, or I'll write it note for note based on more like classical ideas where I keep developing the theme and blah 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 so um, but there is uh, yeah in this album there's one there's one piece that kind of has a little bit of that going on at like the end of frame is sort of like a a, a battle a little bit between the drums and and then unison piano saxophone lines that are kind of insane uh, that I've been practicing at the moment <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I'm able to play. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my recorder is sitting on some, a lot of black. <laughs> it's sitting on a lot of really long lines right now on a music stand. Um, you know what, in this album frame, uh, the first time I listened to it, I didn't look at the tracks or anything. I just put it in and hit play. And, uh, when it got to Con Alma, First of all, I was surprised that Mm. it was there, and it's it's so freaking beautiful. It's crazy. I mean, how how great this arrangement is, and and both you and Gerald just sound ridiculous on it. It's great. So this is just I'm just gushing fanboy now. Apparently, I'll try to get to a question. Um, (laughs) The question being that I guess first, why is it there, and then how like that's a tune that's been just recorded 80 million times by i mean it was written by one of the greatest people in the lineage and it's been recorded by all the greatest ones so why is it there and then how do you figure out how much of you how much it needs to have anything other than what it is in order to feel good to you as a player or a composer It's there. Uh, it's there because uh, about a year or two ago, I ended up doing an accidental duo concert with Gerald at the Jazz Gallery, where literally a musician didn't show up, and we just played duo. And it was really like one of those lucky times, to- or whatever it is, those times where it was like you know we had never done it before, but it was just fantastic. It just for whatever reason we got along musically we didn't have to talk about anything and i just thought ever since then i said man i gotta i somehow or another i want to at least have one duo track on the next album and then in terms of the piece itself gerald has um in his trio he's done an arrangement different than the one we did of cole malma and and i just thought i don't know this might this would might be a cool thing so we we hooked up and and at the time he had been developing um, as I think you may have pointed out or not, that he was developing sort of these like train, coal train substitutions over the thing. And and so we just kind of worked together and we built these intros and outros. And by the time we were done, we felt like it was um, diff- different enough that it was 
worth adding to the hundred other versions <laughs> that, have, that have been done, you know. So that's kind of how it um, came about. Is there a balance when you play something like that, a balance between different enough and uh, respectful enough or same enough or something like that? I don't know what I'm trying to get at with the yeah. second word. but I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I wonder for musicians, for my peers and stuff, because there is always that, that thing of feeling like there's giants on, sitting on your shoulders and sitting on your head. And I think mostly for me, the feeling I'm looking for is just whether I, I like it. And I'm not worried about, is this, like, respectful to the pantheon or the, the tradition and all this kind of stuff. It's more just like, is this cool? Mm. You know, is this just a cool piece of music? If we even just take it out of the jazz context, if you will. So, that's for me. I can't speak for Gerald. I, 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 don't, I don't know. So... But but yeah, that's always like the constant battle <laughs> as a as a saxophone player and as a jazz musician. Just like how much to you know look to and acknowledge the past, and how much to kind of not do that. Yeah, you know. So um, I want to come back to frame, but uh, and especially talk about some of the upcoming performances. But uh, you also, in addition to Kneebody and your own the, this particular project, you're involved in writing for so many different places and i thought maybe you could talk about some of the other things that you've been writing for over the last little while it's been a pretty impressive range well um as of late um let's see here i wrote a bunch of material for a duo album that i just completed with dan tepfer uh, which will probably come out in the fall on sunnyside and then um i won another chamber of music america new works grant in which i proposed to write music for Kneebody and um, this electronica artist named Daedalus. And I've been jokingly calling that the Daedalbody <laughs> project, <laughs> which that joke may come to... I was going to say, yeah, I, I hope it... Bite me in the... <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... Um, 
Uh, so I'm writing for that. So, and... Will you say more about what that means, and especially what the electronica artist is going to be bringing? Well, to okay. It? So Daedalus is—he's um, this amazing musician out of LA that that I've actually known since high school, um, and he's released just a whole bunch of albums. He's he's really hard. Electronica is—it's just like the word jazz. It's like a horrible, huge umbrella term, that, right. that everybody you know. If you're in that world, you're just like ugh. I hate that word, but I'm just using it to save time. The E word. The E word. We're going to call it the E word. Uh, But he, you know, he uses um, samples, computers, um, uh, and instruments, too, to create this music that's just really incredibly hard to describe, so I'm not even going to do it. But um, we've, we, I've I've played on a bunch of his albums, and I've always had this dream of of him working with with Kneebody, since Kneebody's sort of like this hybrid electro acoustic group mm. and we um randomly ended up getting a, a gig at the jazz à vienne festival a couple of years ago in france and we just improvised a concert together and it was really fun and you know there was good and bad but it it was a, a place to start and we've done a couple concerts since then and then so at this point i we we both started realizing that that maybe we should try and actually like write material to this setting and, and see if we can kind of get something to happen. So, so on your end of the writing of that, yeah, you're given that you're not the, the uh, Daedalus isn't like a trumpeter or something, you know, there's yeah. a defined range, a defined number of things. He has an almost unlimited palette that he can paint with. How does that affect you as a writer? I mean, are you just leaving spaces where you say, this is kind of the thing I want, or are you defining like, here's a sample to use, or I don't even know how that would work. It's gonna. It's just going to be case-to-case with the pieces. I, I know his setup enough that I, I I have a rough idea of how to write to it. He, mm. he can't react like a, like a quote-unquote live player. He, he can't re- react in milliseconds, you know. If he hears something, he has to sort of, there's these steps that have to take place where he kind of, goes to his computer and he adjusts things and then he reacts. So there's this sort of delay. So I have to kind of write in a way that, that takes that into account. Um, I think the idea with these pieces is that in fact, he will have uh, all of the material, the separate parts, he will have all of that already. He'll have access to that uh, in his computer and he can manipulate it and bring it in and bring it out if he wants. He also has this technology uh, it's a piece of software called Live, where he where he will also be able to sample uh, in live time while we play with him, and process and spit that sound back out. So okay. I'm going to write in a lot of different ways in the, in in, the, in those terms. Sure, but it's going to be fun. I mean, I I think the the idea for me was there's been a lot of um, projects where it's like jazz band with DJ, and um, you know varying degrees of success in my opinion it usually it seems like they're just kind of smashed together where it's like dj does stuff over band or under right. band do you know what <laughs> i mean whereas i'm going to try and write material where he's like truly a member of the band and can interact and communicate with us as befits the dadal body name I think. as befits yeah. the dadal body <laughs> ridiculous name so yeah
Uh, so tell me about some other things that you were, you've been working on. Um, there's going to be a new Knee Body album recorded in March, so I've been writing for that. Um, With any particular uh, thematic bent or anything? or uh... not uh, Hard to say at this okay. point. Yeah, but we're really excited about the new material, so... Um, but um, yeah, nothing else coming to mind. There was some film work I did last year um, or two years ago. I I got to write for a John Krasinski um, film uh, called Interviews with with Hideous Men, <laughs> and uh, that was really fun. So I, there's definitely stuff that kind of lands in my lap in, in weird and random ways. Do you find for each of these each of these projects and each of these settings is there a is there a different part of you the composer that comes out of the things oh, this is a knee body thing now that i've got it down on paper i can tell this is for that band and this is for one of my own projects do you can you kind of split those things up yeah i mean absolutely that's kind of how it comes out yeah because i um uh hopefully the idea is that all these different things are they're so different these different bands are so different sounding that it would be impossible to bring one piece into another though that's happened a couple times there's been a couple there was a um there was a piece from my my first solo album called no thank you mr west um yeah which yeah. is a whole other story but uh <laughs> but i was able to bring that into knee body and we were able to sort of knee body it and in a way that made it fit and that actually recently had there was a piece that i wrote for that Tepfer duo album that also I was able to bring in anybody, but it's pretty rare. Mm. And that's the thing. Again, it's like I, I tend to write for just, I'm imagining the bands and the people playing sure. them. Um, so for better or worse, I tend to write, I tend to write more and better when I actually have things to write to. Um, so, yeah. I know you're also involved um, in education now at, the new school, if I'm correct, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm wondering, you and kind of the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, the like culture of knee body, the way it works, the way the music works. Um, I wonder whether you're able to to capture that in some way for students that you work with, whether it translates well into education, because um, it it's a fairly specific way of working. It strikes me, uh, and. Uh, and one that is not exactly like I imagine the standard jazz education program. Well, that's be. been yeah, that's been a thing that's come up a lot. Like, well, okay, so first of all, Nebody has done a whole bunch of clinics and master classes. We taught at the Banff Institute last year. We've we've done a lot of teaching sure. as a band, and um, and yeah, and so when we do when we teach we try and talk about what it means to have a band in the jazz world, which is not that common, you know? So we talk about the business side of things. We talk about um, learning things by ear. We talk about shared leadership and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, as much as we can when we teach as a band, we try and impart that information. And then individually, sure, it comes up, and and I'll bring it up with with students. Something that I have noticed, for some reason, I've ended up doing three or four interviews in the last year with PhD students that are reading that are writing 
um, theses about is that the, how I'd pronounce it? Theses? Yes, multiple theses. Multiple, yeah, multiple theses. theses. Yeah. Um, about um, like the direction of jazz education is it mm. working and what's working about and what's not. And the thing that's occurred to me in all these interviews that I keep bringing up is, you know, I, I think like half of a successful program at this point is just really like the teachers that you have, you know? So when I think about going to Eastman at the time, our teachers were Mike Kane and Ralph Alessi and their aesthetic was so strong, like their conceptual thing that they brought to the students was so strong. It was just like a gift. Like when I look back on it now, I go, Oh wow. I was really lucky that I caught that little window when they were teaching there because you're going to get, um, the technique and the scales and the transcribing and all like this sort of meat and potatoes that you're going to get that kind of anywhere, you know, so that's not really the thing, you know, the thing is like somehow energetically and through direct experience, are you able to get the other side of it, like the music side through the teachers and by, um, direct like mentorship and example. Mm. Uh, th this comes up on the show a lot, and it comes up everywhere in the jazz world. Yeah. Uh, this idea of the education system having replaced the old uh, kind of apprenticeship system, you know, the yeah. come up with a master or play in a big band, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows the story at this point. Uh, and so I, I just wonder where you, how you feel about that and how you feel one has is able to replace the other and uh, your experiences on kind of both ends of that spectrum, I guess. Well, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, it's sort of like life just chugs along. Right. <laughs> so you either get with the program or you don't. You know what I mean? I yeah. Mean, it's just kind of, I uh, caught, I was just incredibly lucky to catch just the very tail end of that. I, I remember taking a year off from Eastman in 98. And for that year, I got to hang out and play with Billy Higgins for that whole year. And I have to say that that was absolutely one of the most important and influential experiences of my life as a musician. And so I really do see the value of that system. <laughs> and it's a shame that it doesn't happen more because the truth is uh, what I came to realize in that experience is that uh, that is one of the simplest and most direct ways to actually convey and 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 pass on the spirit if you will mm. of this music is to just literally experience it with with people that do it and are older than you and good at it you know or in billy's case like you know whatever he's a transcendent guy you know and so but you know what are you gonna do it's like this is this is where we're at now and um i think you know i like one, one thing i really like about New York is that I, I love that I, I what I see is still like a, a real willingness for older, more established players to play with younger guys that don't really have a name. Like I've noticed that people still just do that a lot. And so to me, I, that represents maybe still carrying on that tradition at least a little bit, mm. which is that there's that willingness of a, you know, just a much older, better player to play with some guy at bar next door because it's just like the thing to do. You yeah. Know? I was mentioning to you before we started recording that yesterday I spoke with Tim Byrne and uh, he was saying that for him, one of the reasons he likes to play with younger players is because they're still at a place where they're really willing to work on the music, where he can really write hard things and say, we're going to have to rehearse this. Yeah. And they'll want 
to rehearse. They'll want the challenge. They'll be hungry, uh, you know, to kind of put themselves through or over as many hurdles as they possibly can, musically speaking. And he said he finds it really, he said he writes better in that situation than in almost any other Hmm. because he's really writing for people who he knows will dig in, Hmm. which I thought was kind of an interesting take it's not so much like he's his largesse or you know <laughs> uh, he's saying i really i need it you know i want them to to want what i can provide that's really cool uh, i can i could totally see that you know i think um uh, on the other side of that coin there there are people that at any age are really willing to dig in it's just that people get busier sure but i mean that being said i i kind of can also see tim's side like there's also just literally there are people that like they don't want to dig in anymore, but like it is nice to see. For example, like I'm I'm doing some CD release concerts in LA, and the guitarist for those concerts will be this guy Larry Koontz, who I've known for like a decade now, and he's like a great example of that. Like he is still just completely in it for the music and is so willing to just work hard and grow, and it's really inspiring to me. It's like I I want to have that mindset until i die period yeah like there, i don't want at, at any moment where i'm like yeah i'm done you know i don't want to learn anymore i don't want to grow anymore you know so but that's true i mean te- just on a technical level like you're going to have better luck with younger players because they literally just have more time you know to yeah. just shed um yeah know. and i don't uh, i want to be careful i, I don't want to make it sound like tim was suggesting that like you said, you clarified this for me. Thank you. Yeah. The older players don't want to dig in merely, yeah, yeah. merely that it was statistically more likely that younger players Absolutely. would have the time. Yeah. 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 yeah no, yeah. there's plenty of old, obviously yeah. he plays with his peers also. Of yeah. course. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. But it is cool. Like what, what I like about that idea is, is just that, um, or I think about that a lot in just the sense that like, even with the older players that I play with, I still see that youthful, approach of of like they are willing to just really work on it and then and just like no let's take the time to get this you know? yeah so With Billy, how much of what made it 
special or or you know life affecting for you was was extra musical. Hmm. You mean like the hang, so to speak, as Matt Wilson would say. You know how much yeah. how much is from that, as opposed to like here's how we do it on the bandstand. Gosh, I mean, with him, it was just it was completely like holistic. You know, like it, it was just like one and the same. Mm-hmm. Like he just he was just like at that point in his life. He was just an incredibly joyful, grateful, giving person, and he he just he just exuded so much joy. And so when you hung with him or when you played with, him, it just didn't matter. It was just the vibe, you know. Yeah. And I, I'd like to say that with him, he literally in that entire year, I learned so much playing with that guy and not once did he tell me one thing (laughs) like not once did he say one thing like educational or anything not once you know and that just blows my mind you know that that maybe i learned you know just i mean it's just i still can't get over that you know i just learned so much from that guy and just simply by just watching how he did his thing, and then just playing with him, and, and going, oh, okay, this is how, this is how joy feels, you know, like mm. this is this is how music is supposed to feel when it's right. Yeah. How did that happen in the first place that you ended up spending that year with Billy? I don't know. It was that just kind of luck. I, I when I was in high school, I had this friend that started saxophone a little later than me, and I remember teaching him his first blues scale, mm. and we were just kind of like. We we were just friends, you know, and he he stayed in L.A. and he and he started playing in this group called the World Stage All Stars, which was like a youth group that Billy put together of like talented guys. And then I took that year off, and I told him I was coming into L.A. He's like, "Yeah, you should join this group." So I was in this group, and Billy would Billy would quote unquote coach us but then like through the whole year I, we would just hang at his house and do sessions and and he used to he used to run this place called the world stage which is in Lamert park and um man i can't tell you how many times i would go there at nine in the evening just to hang out and billy would be playing and there'd be like four people in the audience and he'd just be like ben get your horn and then I would just get, I just play with Billy all night. <laughs> just me. You know, just like me, oh, Billy, amazing. and some bass player. And it was just like, at the time, I kind of knew, like, I didn't really realize how lucky I was until later, which I'm kind of grateful I, just, I didn't know. I'm grateful that I was young and dumb enough that I kind of didn't get what was happening. And you just did it. And I just did it, yeah. you know. And then later I was like, oh, right that happened you know <laughs> so that happened a lot you know and so that's that's how i that's how i had, had those experiences mm. really you mentioned uh, earlier uh, getting ready for some live appearances can you uh, tell folks about the upcoming shows yep doing two nights this coming weekend february 3rd and 4th uh in los angeles at a place called the blue whale which is basically like the place now in la um it's just a wonderful, wonderful space, hip space, uh, that's run by a guy named June, who's a huge jazz fan and a great all-around guy. And he's just quickly built this stellar reputation, and now just everybody plays there. All, all the New York guys that come through, they go there. Well, we just love it. Um, so 
I'm playing there two nights, and I'm, it's going to be like a half L.A., half New York band. It'll Tigran will be in it, Nate Wood, Larry Koontz, Dave Robert, Adam Benjamin. And then uh, later in the month, I'll be playing two nights at the Jazz Gallery with almost all the people from the album, which is just like so, some kind of weird wow. miracle. <laughs> uh, so it'll be Ben Street, Joe Clayton, Tigran, Adam Benjamin, Nate Wood, and... Uh, instead of Nierfelder, it'll be uh, Gilad Hexelman. Great. Uh, I know you have another upcoming uh, live radio performance that you're doing. You want to mention that? Yeah, I'm going to be on WNYC's Soundcheck on February 15th. Uh, I'm not quite sure what, what time the actual broadcast will be, but I think it's during the daytime. And um, it will be with um, all guys from the album. It'll be with Ben Street, Nate Wood, Tigran, and Nier, and myself. Great, and I know that they stream that live at uh, WNYC.org, I think, so you can check that out online. Well, my guest is Ben Wendell. The new album is called Frame, and uh, I'm a big fan of your writing and all the various contexts, and I'm glad we had a chance to do this finally. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jason. That's music from Ben Wendell and his new CD, Frame, on Sunnyside Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton, and supported by you, the members, the people who listen and decide to become members of this show. Please go to thejazzsession.com slash join to do just that. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>